you may have caught a hint of this, but let me be the first to actually wish you a happy Father's Day. I can say that because all of us have fathers, and they are a gift to us. In the, at the very least, they gave us life, and for many of us, um, our fathers gave us much, much more than that. And to those of you who are fathers, we, we thank you for your service to Christ. It is, a, at times, not a very glorious job, but it is a wonderful job, and we, we thank the Lord for our fathers. And in that vein, I thought it might be interesting for us to just take a quick step away from the Gospel of John, where we have been uh, for a number of weeks. And because today is somewhat of a special day, turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. If you have trouble finding it, it's right before 2nd and 3rd John. That's an easy for, way for you to find it. Now, you might put a bookmark there. We're going to uh, take kind of the long way around to get there. We'll be there in a while. So you might put a bookmark there or, or your finger. But whatever we think about uh, technology, there is an interesting thing that's happened because of technology. Because of advances in both information technology and the efficiency of DNA testing, there are now several companies, you've seen ads for them, that for a small fee, they'll take a DNA sample from you and they'll give you information on your ethnicity and even people that you're distantly related to. And the purpose is, as one company advertisement says, to reveal your unique heritage, the ethnic groups and geographic regions you originate from. And of course, before all the technology to do that existed, people have been constructing their own family trees for centuries. We have some sort of instinctive desire, instinctive need to know our heritage, to know our origin, to have an identity based in our ancestry. Well, the most observable origin is simply our fathers, who they are and what they're like. The concept of fatherhood is instinctive to us. It's a natural, normal part of who we are. Now, I don't feel compelled to reflect every man-made holiday in our worship services. Uh, Father's Day didn't become an observed holiday until the early 1900s, and I'll probably never preach a Groundhog Day sermon. I don't think that's going to happen. But the fact is, is that Father's Day has become such an integral part of our culture and such an important part of who we are as human beings made in the, in the image of God that I, I felt to just ignore it would almost be insensitive. But I also know that it's equally insensitive to assume that Father's Day is a happy day for everyone. For some of you, I know that it can actually be a very difficult day. It can be difficult for children whose fathers have failed them at some level. It can be difficult for those whose fathers have passed away. It can be difficult for fathers whose children have failed or rejected them. So I'm not under any illusions that this is always a happy day for everyone in the room. And yet at the same time, we can't deny that every one of us, you and me, we have an innate desire, we have this yearning and desire for the love of a father. Uh, the, the father is the origin of our very lives, the source of our continued provision. And I would even say that the current attack on the institution of fatherhood by proponents of gender confusion and all the, the horrible outworkings of society's attempts to blur the roles of males and females, this has so badly hurt people. It's hurt humanity. Because regardless of how you can try to brainwash everyone, all of you still yearn for the love of a father. You cannot take that away. It's hard to imagine, imagine humanity without that yearning, without that desire. But the fact is, is that fatherhood 
has a model. It has an origin. Our earthly fathers are so very important to us, but they're ultimately just a photograph. They're a, they're a portrait of the original father, and that is God the Father. Now, from a human timeline perspective, technically speaking, God has not always been a creator, meaning that there was a time from a human timeline standpoint that he had not yet created. But God has always been a father. That's always been his identity. Psalm 2 tells of God the Father speaking to God the Son long before God the Son became a man, born as the man Jesus Christ. In John 17, Jesus requested in prayer, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed, meaning that God the Son enjoyed glory with God the Father long before creation. They've always existed in perfect, loving harmonious, exquisite relationship for all of eternity past. Now, for us as New Testament believers, we routinely pray as Jesus instructed us. We address God as our Father who is in heaven, and we don't even give that a second thought. But I wonder, like the companies that advertise finding out your physical DNA and your origins, what is the origin, what is the DNA of our glorious privilege to address God as Father. What's the history of God as our Father? Well, to understand our own spiritual DNA, so to speak, we need to understand how God began relating to humanity. We have to go all the way back to the beginning. Certainly in creation, God assumed a very fatherly role in the creation of Adam and Eve. For the very first time, God created life in his own image, who, spiritually speaking, if I can put it like this, looked like him. In fact, the genealogy of Luke chapter 3 even calls Adam the son of God. Of course, after the fall of mankind, when God's human children rejected his rule, rejected his love, rejected his provision, now access to God was no longer like a child to a father. Access to God was reduced to unholy humanity needing a mediator, a negotiator to meet with holy God. Now there was a separation, there was a wall, the relationship was broken It was shattered. Now, because the wages of sin is death, a relationship with God was only possible through sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice, and through mediation, through a go-between, a priestly sort of role. And so God set in motion a grand plan. Now, this was always his plan because when he created human beings, he fully knew that they would fall into sin. But he began this history-long decree to restore humanity, or at least a portion of humanity, to that perfect father-child relationship again. That was his goal. And this plan began with a, a vision. And the vision was to create a chosen nation from scratch, completely brand new. And this nation would be consecrated and commissioned by God to do two things. One would be immediate, and one would come much later. The first thing that the nation was consecrated to do that was immediate, this chosen nation was to be a light to the world. They were to be a set-apart and different nation in order to draw others to God. And this nation, of course, is Israel. Exodus 19, verse 6 gives the purpose statement of the nation of Israel. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A priest, by definition, stands between mankind and God in a mediating function, bridging the gap. So Israel was to make God known to her neighbors, make God available in the world. 
But the second thing that this chosen nation was consecrated, commissioned to do, this would come later, through this nation, God's Messiah, His anointed one, the ultimate, the final mediator between God and mankind, the one who would usher in a whole new age of how humanity relates to God, this mediator, this anointed one, this Messiah, would come through Israel. And so essentially, the entire Old Testament is really the story of God working out the first part of this plan, the chosen nation part, the New Testament, is the story of God working out the second part of his plan. But as New Testament believers in the Lord Jesus, we already know how the story ends. And so I think sometimes it's difficult for us to bridge the gap backwards to this really all-important time when God was setting in motion his plan of redemption, which we now fully enjoy. I've heard people say sometimes that the Old Testament has nothing to do with the New Testament. I don't know how you can say that without choking on your own words. Because how would you understand the New Testament without the Old Testament? So in particular, I think what's hard for us to understand is, is the fact that access to God isn't what it used to be. We have such access to God. In fact, Hebrews 4 tells us we're to boldly approach the throne of God. And because we're used to this access, it's hard for us to grasp that God as a father in the Old Testament was much more national than it was individual. That it was much more about the nation of Israel, not the individuals in the nation. In other words, the times in the Old Testament when God is pictured as a father, generally speaking, it is to Israel as a nation, as a whole. And it doesn't happen very often. God is designated in the Old Testament as a father only 18 times. That's it. Now, compared to his other designations, God, Yahweh, Elohim, and so forth, which all occur hundreds of times, his designation only 18 times as a father is very, it's minuscule. It's tiny. But regardless of the few times that God is called father in the Old Testament, we still see him acting as a father to Israel. So to help us kind of understand our own spiritual DNA, I'd like to suggest three ways that God has been Israel's father. And then we'll get to our text in a few minutes. Three ways that God has been Israel's father. First, he redeemed Israel. Second, he ruled Israel. And third, he reserved Israel. He redeemed, he ruled, he reserved Israel. Now, we're going to touch on a lot of scriptures as we do on occasion. And so it might be more helpful just to make a note of them as we go. Let me give you the first way that God has been Israel's father. He redeemed Israel. He redeemed her. Now, before the nation of Israel ever existed, God told Abraham in Genesis 15, 13, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Now, obviously, as you read through the biblical account, this is speaking of the centuries that Israel was in Egypt, growing up as a nation, even as they were enslaved so very harshly. And so why did God do this? I mean, he predicted it before it happened. And God is never subject to history. God wasn't somehow looking down the corridors of time and going, oh no, there's going to be this whole 400 years enslavement thing. I better make a plan. No, that was his plan. So why would he do that? I mean, why not just raise up this great nation through Abraham, bless them, and have them fulfill their purpose? I think the simplest way to understand this is that the God who has the right to create nations and the God who has the right to destroy nations would create Israel and then rescue her from oppression 
And what that, what that did was that it created a situation in which Israel could now love God out of gratitude and out of thankfulness. Exodus 20 records that God made a covenant with Israel, and he's about to give them stipulations, conditions, that if they'll keep these conditions, he'll bless them, he'll protect them, he'll keep them, he'll elevate them, he'll honor them, he'll provide for them. What are these provisions, these stipulations? Well, it begins like this. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, and so forth. These are, of course, the Ten Commandments, the heart and soul of God's covenant with Israel. By the way, it was a written covenant with two copies, uh, written on stone, one for one party and one for the other, and they were kept together because the two parties were in the same place. We see those pictured in the Ten Commandments, the tablets that Moses brought down from the mountain. So this is how the people of God would show their love and show their delight in the Lord. They would obey him, proving to be those who keep their side of the covenant. But what was it that obligated them to him? Why did they have an obligation to God? What was it that from a human standpoint gave God the right to say, you will obey my law, you will keep my covenant? What gave him claim over this people? Well, the answer is right before giving Israel the Ten Commandments, he states his rights. He says in Exodus 20, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, I saved your life, therefore I have rights over you. And so God chose Israel as his own nation. He, he turned then his terrifying sights on Egypt, who had oppressed Israel those 400 years. God raised up the prophet Moses to be his representative to Egypt's Pharaoh. The Pharaoh was a young man named Amenhotep II, who himself had four sons already at the age of 26. And here's what Moses was instructed to tell Pharaoh. Exodus 4, beginning in verse 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Pharaoh had a choice. And of course, we know that ultimately God did kill the firstborn son of Pharaoh and the firstborn of all of Egypt because Pharaoh refused. what, What a picture of a strong father rescuing and redeeming what he calls his firstborn son, Israel. And although the whole earth belongs to God, God chose Israel for this special father-son relationship. Exodus 19, verse 5, right before the purpose statement of Israel, God says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And all of you who are fathers and mothers, you understand treasured possession. If you're keeping your children and babysitting some of the other's children, um, you know who are yours. They're your treasured possession. And maybe out of integrity, you'll take really, really good care of someone else's children, but it's still not the same, and we all know it. We have our treasured possessions. And this relationship is based on God's redeeming work, his rescue of the people that he chose. Later in Deuteronomy, which is basically speeches that Moses gave right before Israel entered the promised land 40 years later, 40 years after the Exodus, God reminds Israel of this special relationship. In Deuteronomy one thirty one, Moses reminded Israel on God's behalf, you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a, as a man carries his son. 
all the way that you went until you came to this place. In Deuteronomy 32, Moses again reminds them of their father's love for them. He describes God as a man who finds a helpless child in the desert. Deuteronomy 32, verse 10, he found him in the desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. The apple of his eye, this is a a metaphor for the most special person to me. In fact, Deuteronomy also uses adoption language to speak of God's fatherly relationship based in his redemption, his rescue of Israel. Moses describes God in these terms, Deuteronomy 10, verse 18. He executes justice for the fatherless and widow, and he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And so God is pictured as one who takes pity on the widow, the one who doesn't have a husband, on the fatherless, the orphan, one without a father, and the sojourner, one without a home. And in the very next verse, Israel is reminded to love the sojourner. And the reason is, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. In other words, you were the ones without a father. You were the ones without a home. And God gave you both. Moses says it even more directly in Deuteronomy 14, 1 and 2. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And so Israel essentially becomes God's adopted children. By the way, theologians have a name for this. It's called divine election, that God chose Israel. He adopted them for the purpose of serving him and fulfilling his purposes for them. Moses reminded Israel not to be haughty or to be arrogant as God's nation. He reminds them who chose whom. Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8 is, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the, gods, that, that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Just to be technical, when God chose Israel, they had one member, okay? And that's it. Not a very big country. But he gives the reason. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In fact, in the future, Israel will once again call upon the fact that God is their father who redeemed them, who rescued them, to make a claim for him to continue to love them even though they rebelled. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago on Sunday night, we studied Isaiah 63, and we saw an Israel of the future crying out for mercy from God. Isaiah 63, verse 16, For you are our Father, O Lord, our, our Father, our Redeemer from of old is your name. In other words, because you are our Father and you redeemed us once, would you do it one more time? Would you do it one more time? And the future Israel will acknowledge that He completely made them, that they exist because of his love and because of his rescue. Isaiah 64, verse 8, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. So God has clearly been Israel's Father in that he redeemed them. He saved them. But there's a second way that he has clearly been their Father. He ruled Israel. He ruled Israel. Now, once again, we have to go all the way back to the beginning. In the Garden of Eden, Adam was to fill the earth. He was to subdue it. He was to have dominion over it. In other words, 
Adam was to be the human king over the earth as God's representative. After the fall of Adam into sin and God initiated his grand plan to restore the broken relationship with mankind, now in the nation of Israel, we begin to see a a return to God ruling through a human representative. Now first, Moses takes a very king-like a king-like role, although he's never given the title, he's never given the office. But in Deuteronomy 17, Moses, who really is very much a, a, a go-between between God and the people, Moses tells Israel that in the future she will desire a king. In Deuteronomy 17, verse 15, he says, You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. Okay, so we have from the very beginning Garden of Eden, and now in Israel we're going to see set up that the way God will rule the earth, the way he will rule those who love him in particular, will be to set up a human king in his stead to represent him. Now, Israel was always meant to be a theocracy ruled by God, but God would provide a human king to be his representative. Now, here's the question, though. How would God characterize his own relationship with this human king? The relationship between God and his chosen human king is pictured as a father-son relationship. In God's covenant with King David regarding David's offspring, 2 Samuel seven fourteen and 15 says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. In fact, according to Psalm 89, verse 26, a king of Israel was to make this cry. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. It is a father-son relationship. But this king had a grave and important responsibility before God and before his people. He was to be a model Israelite. He was to be an example of what it looks like to be obedient to God as his son. He was to be an illustration of how the love of a father engenders in return the love of the son expressed in obedience. The king was to be a law keeper who made the people see that Yahweh is the only true and living God and made the nations around him see that Yahweh is the only true and living God. In fact, concerning this law of God, Israel, and by implication, any model king of Israel, Moses gave this mission. Here was the mission. Deuteronomy 4, beginning in verse 6, Keep them, the laws, and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? And so the model Israelite was to be a king, and the king was to be a model Israelite. But of course, we know ultimately that the human kings would fail. And in fact, they would receive a sharp judgment and a rebuke from God because of their failure. Speaking to the leaders of Israel, which would include her kings, Ezekiel 34 records, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, the kings of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. 
The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. The kings failed. But despite that, God showed himself to be a father to Israel by providing human kings. Well, there's a third way that God was a father to Israel. He redeemed them, he ruled them, and he reserved them. He reserved them. Led by the disobedience of her kings, Israel eventually felt the weight of the disciplinary wrath of God, ultimately ending in her demise as a nation, first at the hands of the Assyrians in 722 B.C., and then at the hands of the Babylonians in 586. The prophet Hosea records God being sad, being, from a human standpoint, almost depressed, if we can just put it in those terms. He's lamenting that even though he loved Israel, and sometimes he had a nickname for Israel, the nickname was Ephraim, after the largest tribe of Israel. Even though he loved Israel, Israel rejected him. Here, listen to this lament, God's sadness, in Hosea 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms. But they did not know that I healed them. How sad. I loved this child. I taught him to walk. I gave him everything. But he forgot about me. Listen to God's fatherly heart for his people. Jeremiah 3, beginning in verse 19, I said, How I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all nations. And I thought you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. They worshiped false gods made of wood. They worshiped false gods made of stone. And in a massive slap in the face to God, listen to how Israel came to address those false and worthless and dead gods. Jeremiah 2.27, they say to a tree, you are my father. Not only rejecting God as father, but saying to a ridiculous inanimate object, you are my father. The very priests of Israel who were to represent the people of God, they turned away from God as their father. Malachi 1.6, God says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. Now, what would you and I do? We would say, that's it. We're done. But not God. When God makes a promise, he never breaks it. Despite Israel's rejection of God as their father, God holds out hope to them for restoration. And the fact he continues to reserve them as his own for a future time when they will turn to him once again. God assures Israel that in a future day, he will bring them home. And he calls future Israel his sons and his daughters. Isaiah 43 Several verses in this chapter say, But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, 
I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. You are precious in my eyes and honored. I love you. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and bring my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And now, by the way, we're not just talking about reserving them for physical rescue we're talking about reserving them for spiritual rescue. In fact, Israel in the future day will cry out to God according to Isaiah 64, 9. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not our iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. We belong to you. We are your sons. We are your daughters. And so God has been Israel's father because he redeemed them, because he ruled them. But they failed in their end of the bargain and turned away from God, so he reserved them. And how is God going to bring his people back? How's he going to do that? There is not a nation of Israel today that truly serves the Lord God. If they did, then they would worship Christ, but they don't. So how's he going to bring them back? Well, speaking of a day when God will restore the fortunes of his people... Jeremiah 31, verse 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. A couple of verses later, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. In fact, listen to God's description of what his restored nation will be to him. Jeremiah 31, verse 9. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back, and I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. Reason? For I am a father to Israel. And a father doesn't give up on his kid. So the Israel is a nation. God is their father, redeemed them. He ruled them, and he reserved them. But for the average Israelite, the concept of God as their father was not very well known. In fact, they were careful not to even speak the name of God for fear of violating the third commandment. They understood that to approach God required sacrifice and to worship him wrongly could even result in death as Nadab and Abihu found out in Leviticus 10 when they died for their wrongful worship of God. As a matter of fact, to blatantly call God your own father was tantamount to blasphemy. John 5.18 says this. This was considered a statement of making yourself equal to God. And so in the Old Testament, God is very, very much the father of Israel, but there's not much emphasis on God as my father. And then all of a sudden, it's like the, the light switch comes on. In the New Testament, everything changes because now God sends his true son the son of God given the human name Jesus who is in fact equal to God as the second member of the trinity and the son of God the mediator produced through Israel he brings to Jews and to Gentiles alike an offer and here is the offer in John 1:12 but to all who did receive him that is Christ who believed in his name he gave the right to become what children 
of God. And to all who would believe on the Lord Jesus, suddenly the concept of God as my father and your father, it just explodes in the New Testament. In the introductory sermon of Jesus Christ, the first words of Christ in our Bible, the Sermon on the Mount in which he describes what true followers of God are like, he's not even 30 seconds in when he says in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 30 seconds into his first recorded sermon, everybody's looking at each other. My Father? God is my Father? Jesus taught us to pray, our Father who is in heaven. Jesus said in Matthew 6, still in the Sermon on the Mount, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He said just a few verses later, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And are you not of more value than they? He continues on in the next chapter. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? I mean, we're literally pages into the New Testament. And all of a sudden, God as our Father just comes alive. And of course, all the New Testament writers are, are just dripping with love from the Father. The Apostle Paul, Romans 1, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. James calls God our Lord and Father in James 3, 9. Peter tells us to call on God as Father in 1 Peter 1, 17. And John brings us to our text for this morning, a text which answers the question, why are we suddenly given this open and unrestricted access to God as our Father? Why is this? Well, these three verses, in 1 John 3, 1 through 3, answers that question. 1 John 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So how is God our Father in this text? Why do we have such open access? Can I suggest three reasons? First, our Father redeemed us. Our Father redeemed us. Verse 1, John exclaims, See what kind of love the Father has given to us. What is this love? Well, this love is defined very clearly for us in Romans 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so when John says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, he's talking about redemption. In the rescue of Israel from Egypt, God illustrated the much greater need of mankind to be redeemed, to be purchased because of the sin debt that we owe to God. So the debt is owed to God and the debt is paid by God. God gave his one and only son, as Hebrews 2 verse 10 says, so that we would, he could bring many sons to glory. The second half of verse 1 explains, as any Christian has come to understand, that the world doesn't know 
what we really are. The world has no comprehension of what it means to be a child of God. Why? The world does not know God. In fact, just a few verses later, John explains that all people have a father, but there are two choices. 1 John 3, verse 10, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. And just like Israel, what does it mean that God has redeemed you from sin and from its penalty? It means this. Romans 8, beginning in verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, that we call him Abba. This is the most tender, the closest, the, the little kid version of father. It is the English, in the English version would be daddy or papa. This comes a long way from being scared that you're going to die because you worship God the wrong way. And so our father has redeemed us. There's a second reason for our open access. Our father rules us. He rules us. Verse 2 gives this glorious promise that our position now, at this very moment, is that of God's children. But John says something in very formal language. He says, what we will be has not yet appeared. That's a formal way of saying you ain't seen nothing yet. We're still sinful. We still fail. Our progressive sanctification seems so very slow, much slower for some of you than for others, as I've noticed. But we have hope. We have hope that someday Christ is going to even the playing field. Some of you progress in sanctification like like a Super Bowl champ. I mean, you just progress forward. You read the word, you obey. Others say, I'll read it and I'll think about it for five years and maybe then I'll obey. But there will be a day when God evens it up. We have hope that someday Christ will appear and when he does, we will be like him. We too will be sinless and perfect and resurrected. Now, why is this? That's a very simple concept very simple principle from the Old Testament we can even understand. In the Old Testament, when you touched something that was considered ceremonially unclean, particularly a dead body, but there are other unclean things, but particularly a dead body, the person touching the unclean body becomes unclean and now had to undergo ceremonial uh, cleansing and washing. But Jesus, he is perfectly holy. He's almighty God. When he touched something unclean, he wasn't contaminated. The unclean, clean, the unclean thing was cleansed. What happened every time Jesus touched or spoke to a dead person? He got up. Because that which was unclean became clean. And so when we see the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be like him. We will be clean. We will be perfect. If you have already placed your faith in Christ. But this appearing of Christ, what does it ultimately lead to? It ultimately leads to God doing what he always intended to do, and that is to rule the earth through a representative human being, a king that is sometimes called in Scripture the second Adam. Adam was the first king, the second and final king of the earth, will be the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember God's covenant with David that the earthly king will be a son to God. The covenant found immediate fulfillment in Solomon, the son of David, but it finds its, its final fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the son of David, who is also the son of God. 
I remind you of the promise. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men. That can't be Christ. With the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will never depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. That's Solomon. Next verse I hadn't read to you yet. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And this will be fulfilled in the appearing of Jesus Christ to rule the earth, as Zechariah 14, 9 says, and the Lord will be king over all the earth on that day. Listen, since the beginning of time, we have longed for a king who will establish peace and justice and righteousness. We have always been excited about glorious rulers. I mean, we get excited about presidential elections and there there's no such thing as a glorious ruler who is also a president the only glorious ruler is a king because only a king has glory we long to be ruled by a strong loving kind protective king well there's one more reason we have such open access to god as our father our father reserves us he reserves us First John 3, verse 3, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. It's a very simple idea here. The believer in Jesus Christ looks forward to his return and thus purifies himself. It, this is not somehow getting ready to be saved. John has already said we are God's children now. This is very simply the idea of working at our progressive sanctification, of becoming more like Christ because we love him so much. It's the idea of, of cleaning ourselves off a little bit so that when Christ returns, we're not filthy. We're not mired in our own sin. This is a husband making a decision to really truly be understanding, according to 1 Peter 3, 7. This is a wife making a decision to really truly be quiet and gentle with her husband, according to 1 Peter 3, 4. These are children making a decision to really truly submit to their parents. Listen, even children can say, I'm looking forward to the coming of Christ, and so I'm going to obey my parents. I'm going to purify myself. This is all believers making a decision to really, truly seek desperately to know God in his word and to do what he says, to simply say, yes, Father, I will obey. And why can we with joy and eagerness purify ourselves, ready ourselves? Well, the answer is found in the first part of verse 3. We are those who thus hope in him. Now, I love biblical hope because biblical hope speaks of certainty. So what is our hope? It is the 100% certainty that Jesus will appear. He will change us to be completely like him, that we're already reserved. Jesus made a promise to his disciples and by extension to all who would believe in him. In John 14, he said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? In other words, reserve a place for you. So, God as your Father has redeemed you. He rules you. And He has reserved you. But God is not everyone's Father. Do not say that all people are God's children because the Bible says otherwise. How is it that you can be certain that God is your father? 1 John 2.23 says, No one who denies the Son, that is Christ, has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Or as Jesus himself said, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to who? To the Father, except through me. The ticket to God the Father is to submit to God the Son. It is a package deal. You want God to be your Father? Then the Son must be your Savior. It is a package deal. So, God has gone through a lot to make you his child and to take his rightful place as your father. It's shown in shadowed form to the nation of Israel and now very obviously to every individual who would place their faith in Christ so that all may celebrate Father's Day to the fullest because we are thankful for our Heavenly Father. He went through a lot to be your father. The least we can do is worship him in return. Our Father, it is so glorious to say those words because we know those are hard-won words. You yourself purchased our ability to address you directly. You purchased our salvation through the blood of your own dear Son. How, how odd this is to us in, in many ways that you are the one to whom we owe the debt of sin and you are the one who pays the debt. You're the one whose wrath was coming at us like an arrow. You're the one who would rightly condemn us to hell. And yet to be our father, to make us into your sons, into your daughters, you stopped your own hand of judgment by paying the price for us. You who are fully righteous and who must punish sin punished it in the person of Jesus Christ. You made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God and by extension so that we might become your children. And so it is with great joy and remembrance that we are able to call you Abba, that we can address you as our own Father who has redeemed us, who happily rules us, and who has reserved us, reserved a place in your home for your adopted children. We thank you and we love you in the name of Jesus Christ who purchased our adoption. Amen.